Good morning. Just want to make you aware of, a, of an opportunity that we have coming up this Saturday so that you can be in prayer about this. We've been given an opportunity, just a, a few of us, it's a limited number, to come to the Brantwood Children's Home and conduct a Bible study with their young people there. And so I would ask that you be in prayer about that. And we are praying that this will become an ongoing opportunity for us to study God's Word with those young people there. Uh, maybe if in the future you are interested in being a part of that, uh, maybe let me know. Also, there's an opportunity if you would like to help provide lunch for those young people on Saturday. Uh, if you'd like to donate towards that, would you please give that to Amber Willingham? She sits right down here on row number two, and uh, she would be glad to take that from you so that we can provide a good lunch for them on Saturday, but mostly just pray that God's Word will find its way into their hearts. We start a new study this morning called In a World of Flesh, and eventually we'll be getting to a study of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But this week, and perhaps for the next couple of weeks, we want to lay a bit of a groundwork and foundation for that study of the fruit of the Spirit. And so we begin with a lesson that we're calling We Are Surrounded. Have you ever felt surrounded? Have you, ever, have you ever felt surrounded in any way? I, I can remember a few times just by way of example and illustration this morning when I felt surrounded. I was a very young person when I went to my very first college football game. I'm not a big college football fan, but I remember going to Neyland Stadium and being surrounded mostly by orange. Uh, almost all orange around me. I, I really don't have a favorite football team, so I'm not trying to, to plug anybody or down anybody, but that was, a, that was an impressive feeling to be surrounded by that many people, some 100,000 people in that stadium watching that football game, and, and I felt surrounded. I can also remember as, as a, a young 7th grade, 8th grade man, young boy, playing football very briefly. And we had a drill that they call the bull in the ring. Maybe you remember this drill. It looked a little bit like this. You would, you would have a, a circle of players, and then uh, one player would stand in the middle, and everyone would just take turns hitting him and, and trying to knock him down. And until, in my case, that person in the middle began to cry and quit the team. That's what happened when I was the bull in the middle of the ring. That, didn't, that did not make me into a football player that made me into a, a cross-country runner so nobody's chasing me in cross-country trying to knock me down but I felt surrounded I, I was petrified I said, the coach said it's your turn to get in there I said I really don't want to do that just surrounded by danger I can remember there are some times and you probably got some pictures you could share <clears throat> times when you felt surrounded just by beauty have you ever felt that way this is a picture I took in Scotland we went on a couple of mission trips there, and you know pictures don't really do things justice, but we stood on the top of a high hill in Scotland and, and looked down, and I just felt surrounded by the beauty of God's creation. Maybe you've been places like this where you're just overwhelmed, and, and you, can, you can just close your eyes and, and praise God and, and maybe sing a song and, and offer a prayer with whoever you're with. Uh, Brooke and I and the family several years back visited an old plantation in Franklin, Tennessee called the Carnton plantation. And this was a home in Franklin that was very near the Battle of Franklin. And so this home became a field hospital. And hundreds of soldiers were brought into this home and, and bled and died 
in every room of this home. And the graves that you see are in the backyard, basically, of, of this plantation. And so as we walked through this home, and we heard these stories, and we walked through this cemetery, we felt surrounded in a different way. We felt surrounded by history, and we felt surrounded by what must have been, been many difficult memories that all of these people would have had. And so when we're talking about being surrounded, you're getting the idea, right? You, you've got your own examples in your life of when you have felt this way in one way or another. The dictionary defines it as to enclose on all sides, to envelop, to, to, to enclose so as to, in some cases, cut off communication or retreat. It's probably what some of those soldiers felt during that battle in the Civil War. Or to constitute part of the environment of. That's what we're talking about when we say we are surrounded. And what we're saying this morning is that we are surrounded by a world of flesh. We are, sur we are surrounded on all sides. It is part of our environment that we live in a world of flesh. Now, let's deal with this as we introduce this study in a few different ways this morning. I want to begin by talking about the error and there's more than one way to get this wrong, but in the religious world that you and I exist in, the, the primary way in which the, the concept of the flesh is misunderstood and, and misapplied and, and quite honestly taught falsely is, is a doctrine or a teaching that's sometimes called total hereditary depravity. Have you ever heard of that? Or If you've not heard of that phrase, maybe you've heard of the term original sin. That, that the idea that this baby, whoever this baby is on the screen here, that this baby was born in a state of, of guilt. Born with the, the guilt and the consequences of the sin that Adam committed way back in Genesis 3 that has been transferred to every living soul since then. And it's transferred at birth. It's transferred before that person ever makes a decision for him or herself. The doctrine of original sin or total hereditary depravity is, is a view of the flesh that a lot of the religious world has today. And maybe you've encountered this when you're talking with some of your religious friends, that all descendants of Adam are so completely corrupt and depraved that they cannot of their own free will, they cannot do any good work, including responding of their own free will to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't do that. They're so sinful from birth that they don't have it in them to respond to God. God must operate on them. And nobody can really explain how this works either, by the way. But God's got to directly operate on this person's heart with the Holy Spirit in order to call them out of that depraved, sinful condition. And unless He does that, they cannot do anything about their condition. Does that sound, first of all, like something God, a position God would put us in? It certainly does not. So the people who believe this doctrine say that we are as helpless to raise ourselves, spiritually speaking, as Lazarus would have been to raise himself physically. That we can do absolutely nothing to change our situation, spiritually speaking. 
In practice, let me quote from from someone who believes this. In practice, total depravity means that there is no human faculty left untouched by sin, even in relative terms. The mind, the emotions, the appetites are biased against God and incapable of appreciating His glory and beauty. Only the renewing work of the Holy Spirit can take the scales from our eyes and turn us around. Now, I don't know if, if you and I can really fully appreciate the, the implications of, of this doctrine on the flesh. The implications, and, and there's entire religious groups that have been built around this idea, and there are four or five other doctrines that, that have got to go along with it in order to hold it up. And so we often call this Calvinism. You can look into that if you want to. But this is a, a teaching about the flesh that they would say is, is true and accurate. And, and, and I would wonder, what, you know, what do we say to that? Is, is that right? Is that true? Is that the way it is? Were you and I born as, as babies, as children, uh, with a sinful uh, account? God was holding sin against us that we did not commit. Let me give you really quickly, this is not exhaustive, and, and even these that I'm giving you are, are not going to be fully developed, but real quickly if you're taking notes, here's four quick responses to this teaching on the flesh, this, this idea that you're just born with zero ability to reach out to God. Response number one is the incarnation of Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible teaches us very clearly in, in passages like John chapter 1, verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2, verse, verse 14, that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Son of God, who, who was from the beginning, the, the, in the beginning was the Word, uh, he, was, he was before creation, that He became flesh. He took on flesh. He became a human being. And not only did He become a human being, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that in that form of flesh, He was tempted in all respects, just as we are, yet what? without sin. Now tell me how that's possible if Jesus becoming flesh would have automatically put Him in a state of sinful life. If He's born, if everyone since Adam is born in sin in the flesh, how is it possible that Jesus Christ could be born in the same way and yet never sin? That's because this doctrine is, is not true. Here's the second response. The nature of sin and our accountability for it. The Bible says in, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. You've heard this passage. The son, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. There was a meme going around, a tweet going around, if you will, uh, Israel around this time. It was a proverb, and the proverb was this, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And what that essentially means is, is this doctrine that we just looked at. You know, our, our ancestors, our fathers, they, they did sinful things and now we are bearing the guilt of that. And, and God says through Ezekiel, you stop sharing that tweet. You, you, you take that off of your phone. You stop telling people that that's, not, that that's true because it's not true. You are going to be responsible for the sins that you commit. You're not going to be held accountable for the sins that your parents committed. Now, you may suffer some earthly consequences. Everyone understands that. But you have no guilt of that sin. 
just because you came from them physically, fleshly speaking. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 sort of explains this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. But how, Paul? Because all sinned. That's how it worked. Death did come through uh, Adam into the world through the sin that he committed, absolutely. But how does it come to us? It's because we all eventually choose to sin. And so the Bible makes it clear, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. It's a possibility. It's a choice that we make. So the nature of sin and our accountability for it is, is a response toward that false teaching about the depravity of, of human flesh from, from birth. Here's a, a third. Children are born innocent. The Bible teaches in Ecclesiastes 7.29 uh, that God made man upright, but that they have sought out many schemes. I made them good, but they have made decisions that have changed their very nature. Matthew 18, 1 through 5, Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That wouldn't make any sense if children are automatically sinful from the time that they're born. Jesus wouldn't say, unless you turn and become completely depraved and unable to do anything good, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. No, children were to come to Him. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And this is what 1 John says in chapter 3, verse 4, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Children don't even know what that means. The children can't even say that out loud when they're born. And you're telling me that they are bearing the guilt of someone's sin? That's not what 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says. Whoever sins and makes a practice of sinning is guilty of sin. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you become slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You've got to make a decision, don't you? I'm going to present myself to, to sin, to the flesh, or I'm going to present myself to God as an instrument of righteousness. But it's up to me. And so the, the, the idea that children are born sinful is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Finally, uh, the parable of the sower. I, I found this written by a guy named Trevor Bowen, and I like the way that he put this, and I'd never thought of it this way. So maybe this will help you if you come up against this sometime. If total depravity is true, there can only be two types of hearts in the world. Those who are utterly disposed and disabled and made opposite to everything that's good, who are wholly inclined to do all evil, that's one category. And the second will be the elect who have been unconditionally cleansed from such corruption. There is no spectrum of degrees, but only holy evil, and as some believers would say, regenerated. Those are the only two categories that could possibly exist, but when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, how many kinds are there? There are four. Now granted, that, that hard ground, that, that, that pathway soil which had not even received the Word of God, was, was pretty bad. It didn't, didn't seem open to it. It doesn't seem like it ever had a chance. But, but there's several others that did. And so when you look at that parable, how can God's Word produce a plant which ultimately dies if the plant was lost or saved from eternity? What was the condition of that plant before it withered or while it was flourishing? Here's a, a good question that, that Trevor Bowen asked. 
He says the good ground was good before it ever received the word. In fact, these people heard the gospel with a noble and good heart. How could they have done this? How can you receive and hear the gospel with a noble and good heart if you are wholly inclined to nothing but evil? Well, it's not possible. And so Jesus' parable of the sower almost indirectly in some ways refutes this false teaching about the depraved nature of all flesh. Now, before we continue, a word of caution. This false teaching contains, if you look into it in detail, it contains some truth. There are some scriptures that must be examined that are complex and difficult, and I I wouldn't want to oversimplify this. This is a good thing to study, and you and I need to be as prepared as possible. And so a proper understanding of what scripture is talking about when it mentions the flesh is very helpful. And that's what we're going to try to quickly do right now at this point in the lesson. Kind of an explanation. What are we talking about? When we open up our Bibles, both Old and New Testament, and we see the word flesh translated in our English Bible. Well, when we go to the Old Testament, it's, it's a combination of Hebrew words that I won't bore you with and can't pronounce. There's two, three, four of them, primarily two, that occur about 283 times in the entire Old Testament. And, and one use of these words is a very literal use of the word flesh. And, and you'll see it used uh, exactly for what it sounds like. It's just flesh and blood, literally. Or it might be describing a relationship that's connected by blood, both of men and animals. Genesis 2.21, 2 Kings 5.14, Deuteronomy 14.8. It also refers to the body or the flesh in general, uh, the whole human being. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 11 is a good example of that. So a very literal use of the word flesh, very neutral. Then you have in the Old Testament... Uh, the metaphorical use of the word translated flesh, and it can refer to humanity as a whole. And by extension, you know, the expression all flesh could even include the animals. When you look at Genesis 6, 13, uh, you see God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of what? All flesh. Well, he wasn't just talking about people. And so in some sense, this could encompass all of humanity, including the animal creation, It also stood for uh, the human personality. If you look at Job 19.26, Job says, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so it transcended a little bit beyond the actual literal flesh and blood in some cases. In some sense, it's the total personality of a person. David said in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh, there's our word, faints for you. So it's also used metaphorically as as kind of a euphemism for for parts of the body that were associated with sexual activity and anything referring to a natural or family relationship. So that's the second usage of the Old Testament word for flesh. Thirdly, there's a theological use of it in the Old Testament, several instances of where it's associated with weakness and frailty. Like the mortal nature of man is what we're talking about in these cases. Genesis 3, Job 34, 15. Flesh as weakness. Especially as you compare it with spirit being strong. You with me? The flesh is weak, the the spirit is strong. If you go to a place like 
Second uh, Chronicles 32, verse 8. There's the king of Assyria that's being discussed. And, and, and we're told here in 2 Chronicles 32, 8, with him, with this king of Assyria, is an arm of flesh. He has some power. He has an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God. There's no comparison. The flesh is, is, is weaker than the spirit and, and the power of God. Uh, we're told in Isaiah 40, verse 6, all flesh is grass. And so comparably, it's just weaker and more dependent on God who provides food for all flesh, according to Psalm 136, verse 25. So the Old Testament theology of flesh, it's the human personality, it's the human physicality all combined. And, and sometimes it's regarded as weak and, and frail and less than the spirit but in no way is it ever regarded as sinful. And that's important, isn't it? It's in no way ever regarded as, as inherently sinful. That's the Old Testament usage of the words translated flesh. When we come into the New Testament, there's one particular Greek word that's used about 150 times. The word is sark or sarks, if you'd like to know what that is. And again, there's three categories of how it's used. The first one is flesh as non-sinful. It's a lot like the literal usage in the Old Testament. It's just the substance from which human beings were made. And again, in this sense, we have something in common with animals, although we are distinguished from them in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 39. It can describe also our bodies as a whole, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Even our physical ancestry or lineage, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. The term can also be used to define humanity as a whole. Acts chapter 2, 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You might remember that passage. John 17, verse 2, Since you have given Him authority, Jesus says, over all flesh, all human beings, all of humanity. So to speak of flesh and blood in the New Testament in this particular usage is to speak of a human being. And maybe it's to distinguish them from something that's not a human being, like God as a spirit, or the demonic spirits, or even the spirit of a person after they die who's been separated from their body or their flesh. And so there's this non-sinful usage of it. There's also this symbolic usage in John chapter 6 when Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. No one was actually going to eat Jesus' physical flesh, but you and I just did that, didn't we? We just ate the flesh of Jesus Christ symbolically when we participated in the Lord's Supper together. So it means that in the New Testament. Non-sinful, obviously. You've also got a second category of flesh as something, again, that's weak. The first category doesn't imply that. It doesn't say that, that the flesh is weak or sinful, but, but we're seeing a tendency. As we see this word appearing in the Bible, it's kind of a tendency that the flesh... Uh, it is not ready for all that life is going to throw at it. Do you get that sense? I like the way that this writer put it. The flesh is not always a fit medium through which the higher elements of man may act. And this is what he means, that the flesh can get sick. The flesh is subject to physical infirmity, Galatians 4.13. Or maybe the whole person is weak. In Romans 6, 19, Paul said, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations or the weakness of your flesh. All of you, in some ways, is just weak. 
and unable to do the, the things that we really need to do as a Christian or as a person. The flesh is mortal. It's, it's born of the flesh. And Jesus told Nicodemus that if it's, not, if it's not born again, if it's just flesh, it can't inherit the kingdom of God. So we want to be more than that in a lot of ways. Now, there's no sin in any of these usages of the word flesh. It's just kind of a weak state. It's the weak parts of who we are. Now, there are also some places in the New Testament where the word flesh is almost used as a synonym for sinful, our sinful nature. It's used to define that lost or sinful condition before God comes into our life and saves us through obedience to the gospel. When we were in the flesh, for example, Romans 7 verse 5, we were lost. We were dominated by sin. It had taken over our life and the consequences were very real. And so sometimes it can mean sin. And sometimes it, has, it is used in such a way to sort of sum up what happens in my life, in your life, when sin takes over. That my, my flesh has become sinful because of the nature of sin. And so it's kind of summed up in, in the following ways. And these are some quotes from some smarter people than me. Flesh being weak becomes the gateway to sin. Does that make sense? The flesh is the way that, that sin finds its way into our lives because it's just weak. We want things. We enjoy things. We're, we're susceptible to that. And so it's, it's kind of the gateway to sin. Another person said that it provides the occasion and stimulus for a number of sins. And I think that's also true. And the common thread, as someone else put it, for all the uses of the word flesh is the idea of weakness or a transitory nature. Compared to the Spirit, which denotes life and power, the flesh is weak. Are we all on the same page so far? What she's saying here is our bodies are not sinful. They're not born that way, certainly. But our minds retain certain fleshly patterns that we learned before we came to Christ. And we still have certain physical cravings that we have to subdue. That's the, the overall cursory explanation of what the flesh means in Old and New Testament Scriptures. Now, what about the extent? Because I, I, I title this lesson, We Are Surrounded. What are we talking about? In what ways are we surrounded by a world of flesh? Let me give you a couple of examples. Personally speaking, the flesh is always there, isn't it? You are always, and I am always a human being while we're in this life, aren't we? And human beings are always going to have desires that conflict with what God purposes for our lives. Is that true or false? It's always there. If, if anyone has managed a way to escape that, please share that with the rest of us. But the rest of us, meanwhile, continue to have sin, as God told Cain, crouching at our door, don't we? It's always crouching at the door. Its desire, God told him, is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. That's what God told Cain. And Cain lost that battle, didn't he? Cain said, I see sin crouching at the door. And if its desire is to rule over me, I'm all for that. Because that's exactly what I want to do. And so he killed his brother. And so you have this situation where if we're in the flesh, we're always personally surrounded by, by this concept, by this temptation. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, what did Jesus say to His disciples? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but what? 
but the flesh is weak. Now, is Jesus saying this to a bunch of people who don't care anything about Him? Who've decided to live in sin? No, Jesus is saying this to His absolute closest followers. And if He said it to them, if He said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, then it's still true. Theirs was weak, ours is weak. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That part of me is just so weak. If I don't ever transcend and rise above what I want and in the flesh as a human being, my baser instincts, I'll never do right. He also sums it up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the Hebrews writer that is, that, that we are to lay aside every weight, and listen to this, the sin which what? clings so closely. Have you noticed that in your life? That sin just wants to hang on to you? That it just wants to, just like some of my kids when they're little, just grab onto your leg and go wherever you go. It just wants to hold on. It wants to tug at your shirt. And you thought you got rid of it. And there it is again, just clinging so closely. It's just that personally, we live in a world of flesh. Every one of us is struggling with temptation. Every one of us is struggling to keep our desires in check. And every one of us understands that this is a part of our lives that can become weak and that we need to be very careful about, right? We live in that world personally, but it's not just personally. It's not just personally that we are surrounded in a world of flesh. It's also publicly because the desires of the flesh, James chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, they lead to temptation. Temptation leads to sin. When sin is fully grown, it leads to death. And so you have an entire population of the world who's walking around. And what does the Bible tell us? It says that most of these people have chosen to pursue the desires of their flesh. Personally, we all struggle. But publicly, most people have given in to that struggle, right? They've given in. That's why Peter said to them in Acts 2.40, Save yourselves from this crooked, perverse, twisted generation. All the people around you are living according to the flesh. You look at a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, there is a course of this world, a path that they're on. There is a prince of the power of the air. There is a spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The rest of mankind are described as children of wrath as a result of their disobedience. The people around us are not living according to the spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. And in that case... We live not only in a world of flesh personally, but in a world of flesh publicly. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that most people will choose this path. Why? Because it's easier. It's more fun in the moment. It's, it's more gratifying to do the things that our flesh wants to do, isn't it? So it stands to reason that in some ways we are surrounded. As Paul told the Corinthians, we are hard-pressed on every side, 2 Corinthians 4, 8. I like the way someone put it, that the consequences of rejecting God's truth are undeniable. We know that what we believe dictates how we behave. Today we're seeing the moral breakdown permeating the culture around us, and it's playing out with devastating consequences in our culture. Would you agree without any further comments that the Bible teaches that we live in a world of flesh? that we're surrounded by. We don't need any other comments to prove that. But here are some observations that I made this week in my study that I thought were interesting. 
that you might find interesting. 50% of Americans, and this is a record high, rate the overall state of moral values in this country as poor. 50%. That's the highest that that has ever been in the 20 years that Gallup has been doing its polling. Half of Americans say it's, it's, the moral values are poor. Now, 78% of Americans in the same study say they're just going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. We're surrounded now. We're going to be more surrounded as time goes on, not less surrounded. Now, what's some of the evidence of that? According to one study, 40 million U.S. adults regularly visit Internet pornography websites to make no mention of the money that's spent. I had a hard time finding the right number, and I stopped looking after a while. I don't like to Google those words. But it's a lot of money being spent because 40-plus million adults are regularly going to Internet pornography websites. Recent industry research says that impulse buying accounts for between 40 and 80% of all purchases. We're talking about the flesh here. It's not just pornography. It's what do you spend your money on? More than 50% of all groceries are sold because of impulsiveness. Somebody has been following me around Walmart. Have they been following you too? I mean, I, wouldn't, I, I would never buy most of the stuff that I buy at the grocery store if it wasn't for impulsiveness. That looks good. How many times do you go to the grocery store and say, what do I need to properly fuel my body and that's all I want? No, the Keebler elf would be out of business if that's the only kind of shopping that anybody ever did. Most of the shopping that it goes on in this country is what people want. A recent Gallup poll reported 89% of Americans consider infidelity to be immoral. Nine out of ten, I didn't know that. It's immoral to cheat on your husband or wife. And yet, the Journal of Marriage and Divorce says that 70% of married Americans will cheat at least once in their marriage. In other words, I know it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. But I want to do it. Nine out of ten say it's wrong. Seven out of ten say, I don't care if it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. We're surrounded by a world of flesh. A recent poll reports the average American tells four lies a day. And I'm going to say that's not true, and that's my first lie for the day. We'll see what the other three are. According to one site, in one year, the average American may eat roughly three pounds of sugar a week, totaling around 130 pounds of sugar annually. Is that because it's good for our bodies? No, I, everybody got quiet here. Hey, what are we talking about now? Let's, let's go back to the stuff I don't do. No, nobody eats sugar because we need it. We eat it because we enjoy it. We like it. It's a desire of the flesh. I'm not here to tell you that there's something inherently wrong with that. I'm just here to tell you we're surrounded by this. We're surrounded by people who do what they want to do. And whatever the consequences are, they just face them. This is staggering. Americans on average check their phones 344 times a day. Every four minutes. Is that because somebody has an earth-shattering need that they need you every four minutes of your day? No, that's not what it is. We're checking those phones because we like to. There's something on there we want to read. There's something on there we want to watch. There's something on there we want to buy. Do you know that your average screen time on a week is going to be three, four, five, six hours, you probably had your phone pop up this morning right in Bible class. Hey, you, 
you spent too much time on your phone this week, and we're all kind of humbled by that on Sunday mornings. I think that's a good time to do it, by the way. We live in a world of flesh. Ultimately, when it comes to the flesh, we're surrounded, aren't we? There's no denying. There's no question. We need to be honest about it. We need to understand it. But when it comes to the flesh, here's the good news. Everyone in this room and everyone who's ever lived and will live has a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. We can choose to set our minds on the flesh or we can choose to set our minds on the Spirit. Romans 8, 6. It's your choice. You can choose to walk and live according to the flesh or you can choose to walk and live according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 4 and 5. Galatians 5, 16. You can choose, and so can I, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 13, verse 14. I don't have to walk down the cookie aisle at Walmart. In fact, it's pretty dangerous when I do. But when I walk down the aisle, that's making provision, and I don't have to do that, do I? You can choose not to do that. We can choose not to wage war according to the flesh, because if we do, we're going to lose 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. We can choose to sow to the flesh and reap corruption. Or we can choose to sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 8. We can choose to put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3, 3. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 2, 11. And to live the rest of our time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 2. Glory to God and hallelujah that the Christian is freed from the bondage of the flesh. The sin that the flesh ushered into our lives. The Christian has been set free. Praise God. But we would be foolish to forget that this is still the world that we live in. In short, as we close this morning, we're surrounded by the flesh in this life from within and from without. But we are also surrounded, hear me, by a great cloud of witnesses who chose to live by faith. Who chose to live by faith. And we are surrounded by a God. We are indwelled by a God and a Savior who wants something better for all of us. So here's the question that I asked this morning. What does it look like? What does it look like when someone chooses to live according to the Spirit in a world of flesh? That's our study that we're entering into for the next several weeks. Now this morning, as is tradition and, and customary, we, we know that there's a lot of different people here from a lot of different walks of life, and you're, you're going through a lot of different things in life, and we want you to know right here and right now, we're going to pause and say that God loves you very much. He, he loves you very much. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've been here. It doesn't matter what you've done. He loves you. and He, he wants to bring you into His family. He wants to save you from the sins, from the fleshly desires that can consume us and take over our lives. God wants to do something about that. This morning, if you're here and, and you, you don't know much about that, but you would like to want to study God's Word, what are you talking about? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we'd love to do that for you. 
or if you've been coming and you, you understand what it means to, to live according to the flesh and you don't want to stop doing that, I want to repent of that. I want to confess Jesus. I want to live for Him. I want to be buried with Him in baptism, have my sins washed away, rise up from that water, a new creation. I'm ready to do that. We can do that this morning before you leave. But probably most of the people in this assembly today are Christians already, and, and maybe we're just continuing one foot in front of the other in this struggle against the flesh. If you need encouragement, if you need prayer, if you've stumbled and you need somebody to help you get up, we're here to help with that as well. God loves you. We love you. We would love to help in any way that you need. Would you respond and let us know how as we stand and sing?